This is Ash Masco from Scoriers, and you're listening to Top 5 Comics Podcast. Welcome to Top 5 Comics Podcast, people talking about comics, pop culture, and events. With us today, we have the Screaming Brain with Ross. Hi. We have the Outsider with John. What up? We have the man with two monkey brains, Steve. You don't ask where they're at, because one's upstairs, one's downstairs. I just told you. Now I don't have to ask. I was <laughs> going to, too. You always have the battle. G.I. Joe. And the creature from this greasy puddle in the parking lot, Rob. Hi. hi. <laughs> it's greasy in this puddle. I just want to come home with you. <laughs> so we should tell Rob off. It's almost dirty. Almost. Uh, welcome to Top 5 Comics Podcast. Uh, today we are doing episode number 105. Yeah! Oh yeah. Today we're going to be doing... Uh, oh, I just realized this is the first episode for season 6 for the podcast. Because every year we've changed so f- seasons to seasons to seasons. So this is season six now. Okay. I'm excited about that. Oh, like, I didn't realize we changed mean? seasons ever. Six years of... Six okay. years of stupid podcast nonsense. Yeah. You mean of excellence in journalism. Excellence in journalism, like Rob said. That's, that's good. Don't shake your head, Ross. These people can't hear your head. Oh, that's better. Don't... Never mind. Keep doing what you're doing. No? Okay. Spiral me? notebook journalism, maybe? That's, I like your first okay. answer. All right, excellence of journalism. There you go. Good stuff. <laughs> oh, all right, well, um, with that out of the way, I guess. So today we're going to be doing uh, Raven, Daughter of Darkness, number one from uh, DC Comics. We'll follow that up with Phoenix Resurrection, issue four, from the illustrious Marvel Comics. Uh, we'll follow that up with uh, Ice Cream Man from Image Comics. Uh, also issue number one. Uh, precursor to that will be, uh, not precursor to the aftermath of that. There we go. Mm. Aftermath of that would be Damage number one, also from DC Comics. And we'll wrap it all up with uh, Rogan Gambit number one. So we get another number ones again, except for the Old Phoenix. It's Ross Ross's favorite. Old Phoenix? Well, I mean, she's the dead one coming back from the dead, so yes, old. Oh. Because we have Jean Grey time-traveled Jean Grey, which has never been the Phoenix, and then we have old Jean Grey, which is the one that died only twice, regardless of what people believe. I, I think maybe maybe three times. No, it was twice. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. Only two times. Yeah, it was during the Graham Morrison run. He didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Careful you say that to you, Rob. I don't care. So yes, old Phoenix. Phoenix has been around forever, Rob. Ross. Rob. That's true. Rob Ross. Yes. That's a guy that runs, like, a gardening show. <laughs> Rob Ross? Okay. Heck yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll go and run an interview that we did with uh, Rob Gilroy uh, over at the Colorado Springs Comic Con uh, 2017. Got a chance to talk with Mr. Rob out there about a little bit about his new project, which is still not something we can talk about on the books, but uh, he's got some interesting stuff getting ready to come out over at Image. Uh, so we got a little conversation with him we'll run for you after we get done with these books. Uh, let's go and kick things off with a little bit of news from Ross, who's eagerly awaiting today. And the dog pile. God damn it! 
Yeah, so um, we had some kind of crazy news today that these guys haven't even heard yet. Um, so coming out of Metal, Scott Snyder is writing a four-part weekly miniseries called Justice League No Justice. Oh. And okay. it is probably the craziest Justice League team I've ever heard of, ever. Um I guess, so the premise of it is Brainiac shows up and warns the Justice League that there's a threat coming from the galaxy that's bigger than anything they've ever faced ever before. And so they need to team up with people they wouldn't normally team up with. Um, and they split it up into four different teams. They're all like part of the same thing, but split into four different parts. So the first team is uh, Team Mystery, which is Martian Manhunter, Sinestro, Superman, Starfire, and Starro. And Starro, like the giant Kinsaru star thing. Yep, that's crazy. And uh, they did put out some artwork, and the art is all being done by Francis Manipul well, for a, this. That's a lucky day. So it's Scott Snyder and Francis Manipul on the series, which huh? is going to be awesome. Um, team two is called uh, Team Entropy, and it's Lobo, Lex Luthor, Beast Boy. Batman, and Deathstroke. Hmm. Okay, so like an assault team, I can see that, alright. And uh, Team 3 is called Team Wonder, and it's Raven, Doctor Fate, Zatanna, Wonder Woman, and Etrigan the Demon. The only one of those that doesn't make sense is Wonder Woman, because she's not magical. Mm-hmm. Well, she's kind of got... She's got a magic lasso. Yeah. That's my name. God... Powers, I guess, yeah. kind of mystical. God. That doesn't yeah. make she's not doing magic tricks. Takes a thumb and pulls a thumb off. No. Well, she can do hurt that. Superman. The worst, the best part about that is people can't see the trick. Is that thing where you grab your thumb and make your thumb look like it's been split? If you do that in front of Superman, does it make him like, oh, it hurts? Does it crumble him? <laughs> I've always wondered that because he's weak to magic. <laughs> Probably not. No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then the last team, uh, Team Four, is Team Wisdom, and it's Cyborg. Harley Quinn, the Adam, Flash, and uh, Damian Wayne, Robin. Hmm. Did I hear Batman in any of those teams? He, yeah, he was the um, second team. Oh, the second team. Okay. Team Entropy. Okay. Huh. Yeah. So it seems like there's one wild card on each team. Yeah. Um, one one person that doesn't seem like they quite fit the bill. Because, I mean, you got a lot of smart guys, and then you got Harley Quinn, which, don't get me wrong, she actually is smart. She's just... She's a doctor. She's just crazy. Mm. Yeah, crazy so, doctor. So maybe, maybe she makes sense for that. I'm surprised Mr. Terrific didn't make the role in. But maybe he's too busy being with the Terrifics. Yeah, probably, I guess. I noticed there's no Aquaman. No Aquaman or Mira or Aqualad either. Mm. And it's kind of... there. It's kind of a mix of all those teams. It's a mix of Justice League and Justice League of America and Teen Titans in there. So. so you said this is only four issues, right? Yeah, and then it's then they're restarting all of the... Not renumbering, but like Justice League of America is going to end right before it. And the regular Justice League creative team is going to totally change after this and follow this story. Does Justice League of America end mean... Justice League the, of America, the, of the, book? the book is ending okay. right before this. That is sad. So, they're ending all these books to do a four-part miniseries that leaves with these teams. Does that mean we're going to get four Justice League books out of it? I don't think so. 
Huh. They haven't said exactly. They have attached other writers onto it, other than Scott Snyder, too. So co-written. They're, all these books are co-written by uh, James Tinian the Fourth and Joshua Williamson. Oh, that's good. And so it's it's two other pretty big name DC people right now. Williamson's been writing Flash, and he's the one that does three of the uh, image books we all like so much, like yeah. uh, Birthright and. I was doing Nell Wider. I, was I might have pronounced uh, Tinian's name wrong. He's um, the guy writing Detective right yeah. now. He's done a couple other books that are pretty good, too. So, like, he's not a bad writer. And it does it does actually say, I'm sorry, the article says, uh, No Justice will set the stage for a family of Justice League comics starting in June. Okay. That makes better sense for him shutting down Justice League America. It's sad, because I think that's a pretty good run so far. My guess is they're probably just trying to consolidate Justice League teams there. Consolidate by making bigger groups? Well, by making America and the regular Justice League one thing. Hmm. I think they'll probably be one book with the majority of the characters from both those books in it gotcha. after this. Well, I mean, that's kind of like what, what Marvel's done with their whole Avengers. Like, there's no surrender storyline. They killed off the other... Well, killed off. God, they canceled the other two Avengers books. And now we have just one Avengers book. Mm-hmm. And it has the whole cast of all of the books together for Avengers. So, as far as, like, books, it's a similar concept. So what I'm wondering, and we'll see how this works out, and then I was kind of thinking with them bringing back the Young Justice cartoon that they might, and they've been setting up the return of, like, Connor Kent in uh, these books, too, that they might bring back, like, Connor and Cassie and Bart and make, like, a, a Young Justice separate from the Teen Titans with that group of characters again. Like in-universe or something? Yeah, in-universe. Hmm. I don't know if we'll see Bart back again, especially after the way that the other Teen Titans series Oh, I can guarantee you we're going to see him back. Well, I think someday. We're going to get pre-New 52 version of him back, probably, hmm. along with Connor. That's my guess. But after seeing this, it makes you wonder if they're going to do a Young Justice with the Teen Titans team, basically. Because huh. all you have all like almost all your Teen Titans in this book, too. Yeah. Well, it's possible. It'd be cool. I really like Impulse, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. If they do it off this, then we're not going to get anything new like that in here at all. It's just going to be the Teen Titans team right now, just with a different name. If they're doing that. That's just my guess, because they're putting it all under the Justice League name. But maybe not. Maybe they'll just keep Teen Titans and keep doing it the way that it has been. I think it'd be weird if they cut Teen Titans altogether. I mean, I can see him reformulating the group again, and because we already have Tim Drake wanting to take over it over in the detective books, so mm-hmm. that might be fueled from this. I mean, in Detective, a couple issues back, whenever he came back from the mysteries dead, when he wasn't really dead, because came back from the stuff with Mister Oz. Yeah, Mister Oz had kidnapped him, or Jorel had kidnapped him, which is questionable. So whenever he came back from that, he's been sort of watching the Titans and being like, "Yep, we got to replace Damien." So, well, I don't see why you wouldn't just do both books. I guess you, you could. could. I mean, because then you have Teen Titans, Titans, Young Justice, Young Justice. See, what I was getting at though is it would make sense to keep the Teen Titans the way they are now. Like that group works as a really good Teen Titans, yeah. and then introduce Young Justice as the old Young Justice team, basically. No, I get you. Yeah, but, but the way that they're setting this up now makes me think that if they were to do something like that, they would move the team that's Teen Titans right now and call it Young Justice, because they're all part of this Justice League, No Justice thing. 
it's just my thinking about it. It's nothing they've said or anything. But. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Hmm. Anyhow, I did think it was a pretty crazy group of characters they've got going on, though. It's weird that there's no Green Lanterns and that Sinestro is part of it. Yeah, that's true. Because they've, they've had three Lanterns be pretty prominent. Yeah, and it's weird that Starro is a part of it in general. Yeah, that's really bizarre. <laughs> the whole Starro thing is super weird. And we just had Lex Luthor be like, I'm not going to do the Superman thing anymore, and now he's part of this still, too. Mm. And Deathstroke. Maybe somebody else isn't reading the comic books. Land their cast up without reading oh, anything. I guarantee you they're connecting it all, to everything. It's all jokes. I was kidding. <laughs> I was kidding. But honestly, that was the first thought I had. I was like, oh, I wonder if they just were behind for Maybe. this story. Duke Thomas shows up and saves the day. <laughs> no? Just me? Okay. It's, it's funny to me, too, that Damien's a part of this after all of our years of, I'm not going to do anything with Damien, ever. Oh, right, yeah, because he doesn't like writing Damien. But I guess there's two other writers on it, too, so maybe Tenny, they're writing yeah, more of true. a... Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. That's, uh... That's an interesting batch of... When is it supposed to start? June? May. May. Yeah. That close? Yeah. Dang. Wow. So I'll probably get more details about that soon. The right. covers all look really good, too. They've That's just cool. shown black and white ones of them, but yeah, they all look really cool. Right. Well, they finally released some other DC news. They finally released a list of what was going to be happening in the... Action Comics 1000 as far as how many people are working on it. And there's a slew of them. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Tom King's got a story. Uh, the guy who made the first two Superman movies with Christopher Reeves, Richard Donner, and Jeff Johns are having some story. So that's... That'll be cool. They neat. did uh, they did yeah. stories before the two of them together for Superman, so... Yeah, I think they'll be cool. So like, we got both those happening. The first uh, story for DC that Brian Michael Bendis is doing is going to be Superman Story 2. Yeah. So his shift from... Marvel to DC, I guess, is going to... That's where they're going to put the first batch of his stuff out. Isn't there some Gleason and Tomasi stuff in this one, too? I feel like I saw their names in there, but I don't remember I, that. I thought so, too. If they weren't on there, it'd be super surprising. There was a slew of freaking names. Jim Lee, of course, is doing some art for yep, it. He's doing. He's supposed to do art for the uh, Brian Michael Bendis storyline. Yeah, so. and I think he did the cover, too, like the yeah. big main cover for it. He did the cover for the main, the main book. They're going to have a whole slew of variant covers, too, that are, like, generation styles. So like a 1930s Superman, 1940s Superman, 1950s Superman, all done by different artists. The only one I can remember is uh, Jim Rude. No, Paul Rude. Something Rude. Now I don't remember Steve his name. Rude. Steve Rude. There you go. Steve Rude is in the 1930s one. That's cool. So he that should did, be neat. He did some of the artwork for Future Quest. Yeah, he did. And he's, he's not a bad artist. Mm-hmm. I think that's cool. So the generational covers, that, that should be an interesting thing, too. Plus, they're putting out a hardcover that has a new Jim Lee cover that's like a thousand issues of of action comics, history of kind of book. I couldn't tell. Was that like a different thing than the actual comic? or It's a totally different book. Like, it's a hardcover that has reprinted a bunch of key issue type stuff. Yeah. And then I assume a bunch of history stuff in it because it's got a lot of pages. So it doesn't seem to include the actual no. thousandth issue, right? Not from what I can tell from the initial description and the write-ups for it. It does not. It's supposed to come out around the same time, but it doesn't. Can, it's not. This, it doesn't have the same one thousand issue stuff in it. However, the titling is confusing. But whatever. It's good times. Yep. Any other news, Ross? That's all the news I have. That's only news in the world. That's pretty big news. That's, that's all that's my news. news. It is pretty big news, actually. Like surprisingly yeah, enough. That Justice League thing, I'm really excited for. So. 
did you tell us who the, who the artist was supposed to be? Francis Manipal. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. That's really cool. Francis yeah. is a really great guy, too. Yeah. So that's cool. He did a lot of Flash stuff. Like he's he he's some, an awesome artist. He's well, done he, a lot. Of he's done a lot things. of Flash. He did some Justice League too, and he did a couple of covers for um, Trinity. I really liked when him and Jeff Johns did the adventure comics with Superboy. Oh yeah, yeah, that was a really good story. That was good stuff. Man, yeah, that's cool to have him back on a, like a kind of big project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he is a really cool guy. I can't think of any other news that I'm aware of other than. The rumor mill is talking about how Solo is already being written off by Disney as a failure. Oh, wow. Oh, that's ridiculous. I, explain I, why, I don't believe that at all. Might explain why we've seen no trailers. No, I don't believe that whatsoever. That's what they're saying, man. Yeah. Well, People are lying. That doesn't make any sense. There is some reworking that had to be done. That's yeah. all I know. We know it's had problems. I mean, the cast... Something else came out of the same article about that. Apparently, the guy who they got playing Solo had to have an on-set acting coach i guess which that doesn't bode well see i've i've heard people have seen it and liked it a lot already too so hmm. yeah i don't these weren't reviewers reviewing it these were people that were no, talking about industry mine. nonsense mine were people that were like working close to lucasfilm and got to now they can't say anything bad I do think Daniel Glover will be great. And the other guy is brand new, so who knows? I think it'll be fine. I don't see it being bad. It might be. Like, I, we'll have to wait and see. The proof will be in what, the pudding. What I've, what I've read is that they made it, especially for the people that were upset with The Last Jedi, because this is going to be more classic Star Wars that you expect. Like, hmm. Huh. So. We'll definitely get some Lando, even if it's not Billy D. Williams' Lando. That's true. I can live with that. It'll be all right. <laughs> Daniel Glover's cool. Other than that, there was anything else I heard that was new. I mean, that's enough of that. I'm stop. All right, I gotta go. Club Oh, sad day, Ross. Yeah, sorry. Wah, 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 Ross. I'll see you guys. See you later, buddy. Late. All right, now with Ross gone, we can get on some good stuff. Just to let you know, there will be spoilers. Like Raven's, not it's fine. All right, so Raven, this is the uh, daughter of the darkness. Uh, this is issue one of a twelve-part miniseries for our uh, artist and writer. So our writer, this is Marv Wolfman writing this, and the uh, artist is Pop Man, which you might remember him from uh, Spy Boy books back uh, in the Dark Horse days. Awesome artist, like I think the guy's super fun. Anyhow, so uh, when we first kick off the book, we open up. It what looks like a uh, I don't know it, it's a it's a call center of some type dealing with tech and uh, the name of the place is Tomorrow Tech so it's all supposed to be future whatever power goes out then everyone freaks out for a second and then power comes back on they're like oh everything's fine from there we wind up seeing something in the bottom of the basement underneath Future Tech come crawling out of a broken like what looks to me like a crazy I don't know space engine of some kind containment. Yeah, containment field or like a, so yeah. There's lots of cables and like a still drum that is now cracked open. And they climb out of, which I think is the real thing we're supposed to get from it. Anyway, we cut from there over to uh, 46 years ago. So we're in the past, and we are at the uh, Wintergate Manor, and we join uh, Baron Winters talking to his uh, his a cheetah, uh, Merlin. And uh, as he's talking to him, he talks about, I know it's hard for us to be the bearers of order and keeping everything balanced. And we have this whole new problem with this Raven character. And she's a perfect mix of 
good and evil in a, in a glorious body and can't. So why is it, and he says, why is it that the demon keeps trying to escape from her? And of course the cat's like, well, please. Cat, truth is, he's, he's something else, but yeah, he is. we don't really deal with that at all. Not, not in this book. Not in this book. Anyhow, uh, so we go from there to uh, a beach party, which is happening current day, or December 14th is the date they give us, but it doesn't say year. But it's modern time. We have a bunch of kids out on the beach party, and it gives us all their names. And I, as far as characters are concerned, the only one that really matters is is, is Rachel or Raven. And uh, it's not normal for Raven to be in this kind of situation. Most of the time we see her, she's very recluse and more of a loner type. She's since her other miniseries, she's been trying to integrate with normal society and be around regular people and figure out how to talk like us and you know merge her human element life with her superhero life. While, she, while she's there, they all kind of are chit-chatting about it. They're having problems with their families. And, like, one guy's parents are getting divorced. And one guy's mom has caught its father cheating, so she joined a cult. And it's it seems like everybody has random things happening in their life that are questionable. And, well, Raven's got something similar going on, too. But hers also deals with an evil demon world that she can't talk to anybody about because it's crazy. We move forward from there a little bit. And uh, everyone's like, oh, it's really great that you decided that you suggested us come out here to the beach to hang out, Raven. In her head, she's thinking, like, I just talk like them so I can fit in, but I have nothing, no idea what I'm saying. Like, I, I mimic what they say, even though I don't understand it. And uh, from there, we get this character running through the woods, gets shot in the shoulder. And when the shot of the shoulder happens, there's, like, a psychic scream that goes out, which is what Raven picked up on. What we see is this crazy, like, burst of Raven from Raven. From there, we cut back to Wingate Manor, and... Uh, we have the Baron pulling out books and going through the books and talking about how he feels bad. He doesn't usually feel bad about balancing the slate between good and evil, but this time he kind of feels bad about it because he likes his Raven character. And he doesn't like the idea she has to die on Christmas, but there's nothing he's going to do to stop it. And then uh, we move from there back to our chase in the woods, and we see the character's been shot, has like energy leaking out of their shoulder for a second, and then like blacks out. And these two crazy jeeps drive up, all guys toting guns, crazy black bag service-looking types, and they're clearly chasing whoever this is. And uh, as that goes on, one of them finally catches up to her, because it's female form, and puts this crazy, like, almost looks like a Wolverine Weapon X helmet on her head, and they talk about, oh, we gotta stop her from being able to, to deceive us, and we gotta stop her from stopping us. And uh, in the process of all that, like, we wind up seeing this crazy... What looks like an earthquake happened, and a couple of guys wrecked their trucks, and then they put on these special goggles, and all of a sudden the crazy crack in the earth is just gone. So whatever this character can do, clouds your mind. Anyhow, Raven shows up, and we wind up having the uh, helmet explode on the girl, and she runs off again, and Raven starts questioning the guy who put the helmet on the girl, and then realizes he's dead. And you can't answer questions when you're dead. How rude is it that you're a dead guy? Anyhow, so she starts chasing after the, the person, too, and is playing with the helmet. All of a sudden, the helmet explodes a little bit more, and all of a sudden, we see Trigon, her father, the demon from the other side. But it's not only Raven that sees him. Wingate also sees him. So him and uh, Merlin. Merlin are both, both see Trigon as well, just like Raven did. And Raven freaks out because, well, that's her evil demon father. And about that time, she turns around and manages to grab a hold of the person running, Force him to the ground and pulls off the hood, and we see Azar, Azar, which is like a crazy four-eyed, demon-faced, horn-headed. 
he looks like Trigon, but with a small body. With a small body. And then uh, she spins around and sees giant Trigon trying to stomp her out and spraying fire everywhere, shooting beams and burning the hell out of everything, telling her how she's failed him. His daughter's failed for not embracing the demon side. And uh, she runs initially. And then uh, we get a little ways down the road and she realizes that none of it was real and that he's gone. But so is the girl in the hoodie. So she decides to return to the camp. Um, the campers pack up, and we, they all go back home. So we we start the next morning out with her with her surrogate family. And uh, there's some interesting stuff that goes on between them, talking about, oh, it's good that she's trying to fit in with normal society, and blah, 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 blah. Just stuff that is background for her being connected to the parents. And there's a little mention of how they're not exactly from our realm either. And uh, as she's wandering through the house, she winds up stumbling on a, a batch of uh, Christmas ornaments that the mother's getting ready to use to set up the Christmas tree. And she pulls out a little Santa Claus, and she's like, what is this? And the mother explains to her who Santa Claus is and how that works, and then asks her to come join the children, the other house, to decorate the Christmas tree. And she's like, yeah, I could probably do that. That seems like it'd be cool. And uh, from there, she leaves and decides to go investigate the situation in the woods. Um, in the process of that, she winds up stumbling upon the name of the company that that the Tomorrow Company, and that leads her to go to another place to try to hunt down Azar. Well, she gets there and finds a whole lot of military guys all dead, or almost dead. So she mentally interrogates one of them by using her, her power to read his, what, he, what he saw last, and sees that it wasn't really Azar. And then again she's confronted by Trigon. And then confronted by a whole room full of zombie-faced, hooded minion types. Of course, at this point, she realizes that, that the, the person she's chasing's powers is to cloud what you see for real. I'm going to stop there so we don't give away the full ending, because we get a, a reveal at the very end. Now, granted, it's not a reveal that we have a real answer to, but it's kind of crazy. But yeah, as far as, like, setup for book, pretty interesting. Chase-wise, I mean, it's a it's a first issue, so it's setup-y. It's cool because we get to see... Raven integrating into society and trying to fit in with normal people rather than just being a uh, outside character in the Teen Titans. Um, I dig the art a lot because I like I like Pop Man. Um, Marv Wolfman, he's an old school writer, you know. He occasionally pops around, does things new new too. But he's like he created a lot of the Titans characters and wrote them for a very long time. So him writing her as young coming of age girl rather than the full adult that he dealt with all those years ago is pretty cool. Score wise, I mean, I give it I give it a three. I mean, it's a pretty good book. As far as, like, setup, I like the art a lot. I like Wolfman a lot. It'll be interesting to see where it tries to go. Because, like, the setup they give us to it is that Raymond's going to die on Christmas. It's December 14th. So we have X number of days to get to where she's supposed to die. And this is how the story's going to start. So, I don't know. I, I like that it's pretty good. If you dig Raven at all, you'd like it. Yeah, I give it a three. That's, that's it. I'm done. Rob, you got a score for that book? Yeah, I'd... I'd probably follow with the three. I mean, it, it's a neat setup. Some of the choices for bringing characters in was a little odd. I mean, they've they've introduced Winterhome before and Merlin and Azog and in some of the other mystic stories, like in the old um, the Phantom Strangers book. And then there was a mini series that dealt with the the dude with Merlin. This is a neat idea to tie her in because I mean, she's always been semi connected to the magic world, and so. I, I enjoyed it. I like the artwork for it. I like Marvel Wolfman. So, all right, uh, Mr. John, you got any comments on that book? 
I know nothing about any of those people. Well, I liked your explanation, though. It was amazing. <laughs> Our work was pretty good. The way you told the story was pretty good. All right. It's a score for me. That's good. That's what, that's what <laughs> yep. I like. Steve gets a four out of five. <laughs> nice. nice. That's what I like. Yeah, I mean, it, Raven is, is a standalone. This is the first time you ever experienced Raven in general. I think they do a pretty good job explaining that she doesn't fit normal society and, like, the idea of her hanging out with these kids on the beach and talking to them and, like, copying what they say to try to integrate herself. I think it's pretty cool. The stuff with the family, like, I feel like we've seen them before, but I can't remember where. I think, was it the previous miniseries? They probably are. Okay. Um, I, I didn't, I don't remember the previous miniseries well enough, but I bet she and some of those kids are actually from that story. I kind of wonder if those parents even harken back further to the Phantom Stranger story. Oh, maybe. So, but, yeah. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. I think you get all you really need. If you have any idea who she is from the, the Titans show or from the Titans Go or from the old Teen Titans or Titans books, I don't feel like it's a bad place to be at. It doesn't feel like a rehash story either, so it's pretty neat. I mean... Maybe not Titans Go. Well, she she's, doesn't, she's doesn't, different in Titans Go. She doesn't play with any... My Little Ponies. Well, not in this one. No. What are you trying to say, Rob? That girl can't play with ponies? I'm just saying that Titans Go, maybe not the best oh, connection. Okay. Duly noted, sir. I think Ross would agree with you, but that's why he left. <laughs> Moving on. Let's move on to Phoenix <laughs> Resurrection number four. Rob, you want to tell me a story about the Phoenix? I do. So, Phoenix Resurrection four is going to be written by Matthew Rosenberg, with art by Raymond Rosen. Sorry if I missed that pronunciation. that. So as we go in the Phoenix series, we've we've been exposed to Jean kind of in this Mayberry-type life where she's a waitress at a diner. And we, as the audience, know that there's something up because everybody that she's encountering are X-Men that have died. And they actually have a lot of fun Easter eggs in there. There's even a point where somebody mentions a teacher and she goes, Oh, Mr. Claremont? Which is just kind of a fun thing for fans or whatever. Chris Claremont? He was the guy that wrote. For those of you who don't know, he wrote an awful lot of the X-Men. did. And they were freaking awesome. Yeah, and for, for many people, it was like kind of the best time of the X-Men. Oh, yeah. So while she's having this life, she starts kind of... She sees things that don't quite add up. There's points where... She forgets that, like, Scott is there, and we as the audience, like, see photos of him appear, like, just before he enters a room or something. Like, her world is, is definitely, like, only barely put together. And she's had moments where it seems like she's seen the Phoenix, but she doesn't quite acknowledge what it is yet. Meanwhile, in the real world, all sorts of significant places in Jean's life are being kind of haunted by... Uh, supernatural versions of villains that that she has faced. And a lot of times they are characters that have either died or it doesn't make any sense that they're where they are at the time. And so while the X-Men run around dealing with her uh, and her fandoms in all these different places, they wind up um, kind of burning through most of their psychics, trying to figure out where she's at and using Cerebro to chase them. We're trying to figure out what's been doing all this. Yeah, yeah, they've burned through everybody. Yeah, even even Cable gives a shot in the machine and gets burnt out. They finally decide to go to the White Queen to see if she has any knowledge on things. And Emma gives them kind of this hint about going to Arizona, which was a spot that was really important to Cyclops, and in theory to Jean Grey. 
when they get there, they realize there's some kind of force that wants them to leave. And as they investigate, they actually discover a giant dome that's protecting this portion of the, the canyon. Dome that's much like an egg. Uh, when they get close to it, it actually winds up opening for them. When they get inside, they see a world that's on fire. Just everything is burning around, and they very quickly get attacked by all sorts of X-Men that have died recently, or have died over time, even. While they're battling them, some of the kind of wiser X-Men, Beast, Old Man Logan, Kitty, realize that this is just a distraction. This is something to keep them away from finding Jean, and they have to find the element in this world that doesn't make sense. And if they can do that, then it'll... Uh, then it'll reveal to them, like, what's really going on here. As they make their way deeper into this, this burning world, we find Jean, and everything's even unraveling faster for her. Literally, in this case, behind her back, the world is starting on fire. And it's only what she sees that's not being affected. And we wind up finding out that she's been having dreams, or she's visited by this older, more powerful version of herself, and these kind of dreams scare her. In the end... This is ramping up for a big confrontation between the X-Men group that's here and the Phoenix. And they believe if they can reach Jean, that maybe they can stop the Phoenix. But if the Phoenix is the one they're truly facing, if she takes control of Jean, it could be the end of the planet. So, it's been a really cool ramp up, um, and they do a very good job of building... All of these kind of fallen X-Men characters into the story to make a pretty unique tell. Yeah, throughout the whole thing, so far when the cameo people, like all the cameos are really cool. Most of them are name drops, but like we see a character with it, and if you've never heard of them, of course it doesn't help you. But as far as like setup, I mean like even the first issue, we have like uh, Cassidy dropped and, ben, well, like, I guess Anna, which is like an old school character. Yeah, she's uh, connected to Jean's life. She was her best friend that got killed in the car accident. Back when they were kids. Yeah. Even, even a few of the more obscure ones, they kind of clear up in this one. But yeah, it's, it's it's definitely like you need to do your homework or, you know, if you're a longtime fan, some of these characters are going to have better residu residuitation with you. Resi that's that's not right Residual? at all. Yes. They, they're Regurgitation? Gonna, that's where you throw them, Rob. Yes. Regurgitation is where you throw them. They're, they're going to have more resonance with you because yeah. you're going to recognize who they are more. Honestly, this is a super strong book as far as I'm concerned. If this is how we're going to see Gene, like this is a legit way to do it, I think. I'd give it I'd give it a four. I, I love the artwork for it so far. I've I've really enjoyed the story. It kinda leads you around a lot. But I th I think where they're going, and I, I didn't talk about that because I want you to read the book, of course, is a, is an interesting way to go with it. Because it's, it's a different solution than most of the X solutions. So, but I'm excited to see where it's going to be. What, what, what comes from this? That'll be cool. And, um, something that I thought was really neat. We know that X-Men Red is coming. So it was kind of cool in this when they split them all up all over the world. We actually find that there's different color codes for the X-Men. So we got gold, blue, which makes sense. But then we also have silver, black, and yellow. So it kind of makes sense that there would be a red out there later, since they actually go through the different color codes. Well, then there's astonishing it's not a color. That's true. But in the book, they might refer to themselves as a color. They don't That's refer true. to themselves as astonishing. That's a good point. Yeah. 
uh, kind of like the Uncanny Avengers were the Unity Squad. They never refer to themselves as Uncanny. Oh, Avengers. that's true. So, either way, I, I'm pretty happy with it. I, I don't know if I would have been before it came out, but I'd give it a four. I, I think it's very strong. What about one through three? How did you rank those? They all, they all actually do really well. One was a huge surprise. Um, so I would have gave that one pretty top marks. Two and three both get you really chased up. Three was probably my, was more significant to me. You know, and that was actually the one where I was, I was debating which one to go through. Because that's the one where they tie it back harder to the Jean Grey number 10 issue. And they also have the whole Emma Frost experience. I actually explained a little bit of that stuff in this one that wasn't there. But, uh, so far for the series, it's been very strong. Like, there's, there's a lot of times where when they bring a character back, it seems pretty poultry. This seems pretty legit so far. Right on. Uh, Mr. John, do you have any input on that book? I looked at it even less than the first one. Oh, but, man. <laughs> what? According to Rob, it's fantastic. <laughs> I need, uh, you need to show me where number one is, and I'll start from there. <laughs> there you, you go. You got me hooked. I, I've enjoyed it. But it, yeah. it is like, I'm a pretty big X fan, so I, I'm not necessarily hard to sell <laughs> for X's. For X-Men in general, that's, that's probably true. Um, Score-wise, you know, I give it three and a half. Overall, like, the first issue I, I thought was fantastic. And, like, seeing this other universe that she's connected to or wherever it is that Jean is at has been really cool. I mean, like, we get this 50s diner. She's straight up, like, pink dress and apron full on. Like, the way it's designed is very, very retro and kind of cool. And like, the way everything else plays out, I mean, the first issue we had the Battle of the Wolverine, and later we have Battle of Magneto, and, like, all the things, the way they connect is so crazy. And just the way the world around her is structured is, like, we really get that in this issue, and it's crazy. Art's been really good. Um, Storyline, like I said, three. I give it a three and a half. I'm interested to see what number five is. As far as a resurrection, like Rob said, a lot of time resurrections are pretty paltry. I mean, the Winter Soldier, Bucky, his return, fantastic. Yeah. This one's so far really good. Now, what this world turns out to be... I mean, that's where it will... Number five will be the one that seals whether it's good or bad. I mean, they did a good job with Nightcrawler as well, I guess. So. Well, yeah, Nightcrawler's Rescue from Heaven. That was pretty That was pretty good, yeah. too. I mean, there's, they're not the only ones. Yeah. But there's plenty of times where the resurrection is very, I don't know, half... Yeah. half it's like, what? He's still alive? Okay. Right. Yeah, something like that. Which, this is not that. No. So, anyhow, yeah, I give it three and a half. Um like I said, the end all be all for it will be issue five, but that's how a series should be anyway. So, if you're high on this long, then five is definitely up your alley. Ha <laughs> ha. No, it's true. It's true. Things that are funny. Yes. All right. Uh, well, I guess we move on from that guy to the uh, the ice cream man. This is from uh, old Image Comics, and uh, it's issue one as well. Uh, this is written by uh, Maxwell Price, and the art is by Martin. Morazzo, which uh, I don't, I don't terribly recognize either one of them. Morazzo's art seems familiar, but I'm not sure. Yeah, why. I think I've seen him before, but I, I can't put my finger on it. Yeah. See, as far as books concerned, like the way it opens up, we're in this uh, small town America, and uh, we have a ice cream truck with a whole line of people picking up ice cream outside. You know, playing its music, and everybody greets the ice cream man. And he seems to know everybody's name, and everybody knows his name, and he just serves up the ice cream. 
fairly standard, not not terribly sinister. Uh, then eventually we get to the last customer in line, and the last customer in line winds up picking up, getting ice cream for him, and he orders, he wants two scoops, he wants chocolate, two scoops of chocolate, because he's a big boy, and he needs to get plenty of ice cream. Anyhow, so he winds up serving up the ice cream to the kid, and there's some, uh, there's some interesting talk between the two of them, and the kid walks on his merry way, and, like, the whole time we have this crazy, like, introverted, like, explanation of spiders and what their venom does, which is what a lot of the breakdown is really about. It's more about that than anything else. I think oh. the, the most important part of this beginning is how the venom gives people everlasting boners. Let us not forget that. Well, it's important. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's in there, so yeah. <laughs> anyway, he finally gets home, finds his uh, clothespin in his pocket before he enters the house, which is odd. Well, once once uh, our boy goes inside, we wind up seeing mail all over the floor, like mail dropped through a post office slit type box. So you know, in front of your door, it, some older houses have like instead of a mailbox, they have like a door slot for mail, and there's mail everywhere. And uh, he's greeted by his pet spider, which is not the weirdest thing. And as he walks through the house, we wind up seeing it's disenfranchised. There's trash everywhere. Things haven't been cleaned up, and eventually happens into the kitchen, which is uh, where we find. Uh, Presumably mom and dad, uh, sitting at the table, looking like living skeletons. Um, far gone dead, rotted like their flesh is... It, they're, like, they're like skulls with flesh on them still. It's pretty gross, just in general. <laughs> From there we jump to the other side of town. On the other side of town we are in a police station where a, a lady is giving a description of a event that happened the evening before where she was accosted by a werewolf. Um... Which is a kind of crazy town, too. And then she explains how the werewolf sucked the flesh off of her cat. And we get a good shot of the cat's uh, skull body. And uh, she, yeah, tells him he sucked the skin right off him. And, of course, our detective, as she's describing the animal, he shows her a drawing. And we get to see the drawing. The drawing is like, a, uh, it's a werewolf. That's It's, it's the wolf man. Yeah. It's the wolf man. Which just makes her sound even crazier. Anyway, eventually they escort her out. And the cops are both like, oh, seriously? This lady's... Man, this can't be real. Anyway, from there they're called into the office, and uh, it's become questionable what the, this this particular they're just like like they're I guess he's the department lead I guess what he would be so the two detectives boss calls him into the office and he shows a picture of this husband and wife and they starts talking about how they've been missing and they think they're guilty of tax evasion and all kinds of other things. Well, we wind up seeing the last picture he gives them is a picture of our boy from the ice cream truck. Which, uh, we all know, his parents are dead in the kitchen. We cut from there to the big boy out adventuring in the woods. And he's, uh, <laughs> he happens across like a dead, like part of a dead animal. And then he runs into the ice cream man out in the woods. And the ice cream man's clothes are tore up, like straight up howling style. Part of his shirt on, part of pants on, like Incredible Hulk almost. Except after he was the Hulk. And, uh, First, the boy's like, what are you doing out here? They kind of surprise you're the ice cream man. He's like, oh, yeah, looks like I am. <laughs> and uh, he magically provides the kid with two scoops of chocolate ice cream and then wanders about his way and sends the kid home. I mean, kind of disturbing. He's, he, he, the way he talks to the kid is pretty it's, it's messed up. Anyway, we jump back to the detectives, and now they are on the way to investigate the house. Um, which we know which house it is because it's the kid's house, and uh, they're talking about it the whole time on the way out there, but you know what what they're gonna find, what's really happening here. Anyway, they eventually get there, 
And uh, we have this weird thing where we wind up seeing or getting a message from the Ice Cream Man that plays for the female detective. And it's weird, but in the process, just before that, we wind up seeing the, the, the male detective, whose name I don't remember, uh, enter the house. So the two of them are separate, but they both find the kitchen the same together. And the kitchen, of course, is where the dead uh, mom and dad are. And the two of them react to that because, of course, it smells terrible. And then uh, the spider manages catching up with the male detective and bites him. And that turns him into a frothing mouth of death. And that's when the, uh, the kid shows up, and he's like, oh, he just doesn't like adults, don't hurt him, because she's trying to kill it, or wants to kill it. And, of course, the kid picks it up and then runs out the house with it. Like, his buddy, the spider, just kills adults, apparently. She chases him into the woods, at which point she runs into the werewolf, who's now choking the crap out of the kid. And uh, because she shows up, the werewolf, instead of eating the kid, throws him away and starts to run, and then he's bitten by the spider also. Of course, that leads him to throw the spider off in the middle of nowhere. And uh, he starts frothing at the mouth, and then just runs off into the woods. So that basically leads our fat kid and the detective laying in the grass. She asks him what his name is finally. He's like, my name's Brian. And she's like, F you, Brian. Because, like, the whole, everything that's happened is because of this kid's stupid spider. Savor the werewolf, which that part is also kind of questionable, I guess, a little bit. Um, anyway, uh, there's another couple pieces towards the end of this that reveal other things about our ice cream man. I'm going to stop there because there's, like, three or four more pages that gets to another weird reveal. Which is, I mean, it's crazy, too. So, like, I mean, when we were talking earlier about this book prior to the show, it almost seems like maybe our ice cream man is kind of like the Crypt Keeper mixed with It the character it from the movies because it seems to be like he's different bag of nuts altogether because the very beginning of the book whenever they're talking about the families and everything's happening there's talk about a person who's afraid of werewolves and then we see him so what exactly he is i'm not entirely sure as far as the book in general I, you know i don't know i give it a two and a half art's not bad the story itself is interesting but it's like an x-file story where you get to the end and you're like huh there must be two more shows to fix this I feel like we're going to like the story after a few more books. But there is definitely too much going on right at the beginning with that ice cream man. That's <laughs> like a buffet of craziness, yeah. Yeah, I mean, book-wise, like I said, I give it two and a half. The art's not bad. The color scheme is all right. I mean, it's got some creepy stuff in it. And, like, some of the stuff that ice cream man says to the kid is just completely out of, out of line in general. But then, of course, the detective lady's like that, too, a little bit. So... I mean, I don't know, I guess in the real world, you wouldn't be the nicest to the kid, especially after certain things that happened. Even though it's not really the kid's fault. I mean, not necessarily, I guess. Anyway, uh, I thought it was interesting. I'm interested to read number two. So, I know it's going back to second print already, so it's super popular. As far as the book, interesting. Uh, Rob, you have any opinions of that book? Yeah, um, I don't know, I, I guess I would give it a two. Uh, it, it's, it's not a bad book, and actually it's picking up a lot of steam. It's more interesting than it seems on the surface. And I think that there's there's a lot of things going on, and hopefully they can bring it all together before they, they wrap the series. But there's a lot of a lot of different elements going on in this particular story, and some of it seems to fit together, and some of it we don't know how it fits yet. So, But it, it's definitely got more appeal than it would sound like just from... I'm excited when, to see. I think go. the title was supposed to be a little misleading. I mean, Ice Cream Man, you think of something pleasant. 
Yeah. And this is that's not what this is supposed to be. Well, yeah, definitely. Uh, Mr. John? I feel like the number of rating is going to be kind of based on the next books, actually. If it goes nowhere, you know, it's not better than a two, like you guys think. But if it goes somewhere really good, I think it was a pretty good beginning. Yeah. It could even be a four if the story keeps up. That's, uh, we'll see. Right. Yeah, that's the tricky thing when, when you gotta kinda make the decision off of just, off of just, just one book. That. And it is kinda, it's, it's not telling because, I mean, the way that these stories are built a lot of times for image is to be taken as five issues, one story. So it's a very valid point that maybe this issue wasn't the best, but as it goes, it, it has a, such a good foundation, it could go into something really great. Right. I don't know. It's definitely interesting to see number two, to see what, what, what it winds up shaking out as, and if number two is like we're assuming it's going to be, and we wind up turning it to tell the crypty, and the next episode is, here's the next messed up case, and how the ice cream man sort of fits. So I mean, if it winds up being that, that's all right. I mean, I, I always like tell from the crypt. The Crypt Keeper was never part of the main story, though. So, like, this adds a different element. Whereas the Ice Cream Man is part of the main story, kind of. Whether he is the crush of the story or the crux, excuse me, the crux of the story or not. I mean, like John said, we need number two to have a better opinion of what's actually going on. So, but yeah, I don't know. Overall, it, if it keeps up, like, 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 like the John said, if it keeps up the way it is and we get some meat out of it in the next couple issues, then yeah, I mean, scores would probably change on that. I mean, I don't think it's a bad book by any means. I mean, on a one to five scale, a two and a half isn't bad. I mean, it's yeah. middle. So, anyhow, uh, let's move on from that to the damage. Is that the damage after the ice cream man? <laughs> Could be. <laughs> no? Funny in my head, not so funny in real life. Well, that's okay, I guess. I understand that. It's fine. Uh, so yeah, we'll move on to damage number one. This is the uh, kickoff book for the... Uh, New Age of Heroes for DC. Yes. So we'll see how that how that pans out, I guess. How it actually works. Uh, so for for the writing, we have two two writers. We got Tony Daniels and Robert Venditti. The art's also done by uh, Tony Daniels. Yeah. Okay. It does have a, a interesting gimmicky kind of cover. We're introduced to Ethan, and Ethan is dealing with a monster, a monster that. Maybe he's not entirely in control of. What we're what we're finding out is that he was promised one thing and he doesn't think that he got it. He's he kind of is telling us that he's they they told him they'd make him a soldier, but they made him a monster. And as he kind of loses his control, he starts breaking the restraints that they've chose to put him in. And who is they? The army. It's the army, yeah. But we don't know which army. I, I assume it's the United a States army. army. Hey, there's a lot of uh, U.S. pride going on in this, so I, I'm, I'm guessing that's the case. There's definitely an, a special uh, commander involved. We'll, we'll reveal that here in a minute. But yeah, yeah, the army. He starts kind of freaking out and breaking his restraints, and we see him transform into what will be Damage. And kind of one of the setups for this issue is that Damage has a time limit. There's an hour where he's just... Almost uncontrollable. As we see damage drop down inside of unnamed city, we realize that what they were carrying him in was a, a cargo plane. And uh, as it's falling apart, only one of the guys is able to get back to these uh, combat suits. Major Liggett's, or Liggett, 
Or ligate? I think we it never fully decided. No, I, I like ligates, but it could be. Well, it could be legit. Legit, legit, legate. Legate probably makes sense too. Legate. Which we'll have to see if he's going to be relevant if, to the If he makes it out of the first issue, I mean, at this point, go on, I'll stop. So it's hard to say. Yeah, so damage is down, and he's tearing apart the city, and people are freaking out. Oh my god, it's a monster. It has to be somewhere in the U.S., because everybody's speaking English. We hear a voice inside Damage's head that's basically saying, like, we don't have to be this. We don't have to be a monster. We don't have to be what they what they tell us to be. And we have this kind of countdown clock going on throughout many of the pages. But as uh, Major Liggett shows up, he's in one of the combat suits and starts fighting him. All the time he's basically telling him, like, oh, you were not the right soldier for this. They should have picked somebody better. You weren't, you weren't the one who should have been in that suit. You only got an hour, and I can do this all day. And just kind of keeps egging him on, and Damage just is, is all about taking him out after that. And he says the guy's name, which seems to be kind of a big thing, like... If Ethan doesn't have complete control over it, how much control damage actually has, or how much, like, brains damage actually has. But he makes short work of the, uh, of the suit. Leaving it bent and broken in the side of a building. In the last few minutes, he's about to smash the guy with a rock, and the get starts kinda, like, uh, trying to get Ethan to, uh, to give him mercy. You know, don't do this, man. I know you can feel you. I can, you can hear me inside. You can control it. And Ethan managed to get damaged to not, to not smash him with a rock. Well, then it's a, it's a pretty big rock, like a giant chunk of pavement boulder, pipes sticking out of it. It's crazy. Yeah. But uh, as he drops it and he turns away, Liggett's like, "Oh, I knew you couldn't finish it. You can't do nothing. I picked the wrong man for this. You couldn't even finish a kill." And. Damage just kind of continues on and keeps raging and throws cars. And Ethan's now telling him, like, you know, we have to calm down. We have to find somewhere to hide because when you're gone, they're going to come for us again. We don't want to be what we're going to, what they made us. He also tells him that these people didn't have anything to do with this. You shouldn't hurt the people. Yeah. So it's like a conversation inside his head. So a lot like when you think about the Hulk, if the Hulk and Banner talked on a regular basis, that'd be kind of what this is like. Except. The only voice we hear is Ethan's. Yeah. And all the monologue at the beginning, or the internal dialogue at the beginning about him feeling like he was cheated by the government, that's all, like, in his consciousness. It's not an actual conversation. It's something he's thinking in his head before he rages out. From there, we're introduced to a, a new character, or at least a new character as far as I know, uh, Curl, Colonel Jones. Jonas. I'm sorry, Jonas. But she seems to be the the one in charge of this unit. And uh, is now responsible for the cover-up. As they come in, um, we kind of find out that she's she's angry about what has gone on with Ethan, but she kind of had wanted him to be this the super weapon that could prevent soldiers from having to take more damage than they need to on a battlefield. But she kind of feels like he's failed them as their project. It's kind of hard to say whether she feels that Ethan has or just damage. She doesn't really refer to him like a regular person, like more like a product of some kind. Right. She's also pretty upset that whatever, wherever they were taking him, whatever mission he's supposed to be on, at this point it impedes that mission, and she's not happy about that either. Yeah. Uh, the other downside is that we do find out the pilot died, 
So at least there's at least one casualty, if not more. Now they talk about the there's supposed to be a whole group of soldiers on there that were there to fight damage if there was a problem. The only one they could get out was the was Leggett. He was the only one where you get to the suits before the plane started to go down. So as far as like groups they lost, whatever group of the people they had, the entire group was a casualty. So they didn't really name how many soldiers or whatever, but we yeah. see a, we see like five or six suits in there, and they're all. That's true. We saw a like few of them before. Hulkbuster style suits. Yeah, before the plane went down. Ethan's now in the wind, and she's got to deal with the, the consequences of that. And there's a pretty big catch at the end of the book that's going to set up where we're going to go from here with damage and Ethan. I don't know. Very action packed book. A lot of this is very visually told. There's not a ton of dialogue. We're not seeing a whole lot of existential stuff with it, so it is a quick read. So for the first character in the New Age of Heroes, it's a decent start for damage. I'd say probably a 2.5. I love the artwork for it, but I wanted more in this story. And I mean, they may give that to us, but kind of felt like, kind of felt like he was just discount Hulk. Right. I mean, really, the catch at the end does make me very interested, but that's something you got to check out the book for. So. Right, right. Mr. John? Uh, I agree with Rob. It's it's meant to be extremely visual, but I'm a dialogue kind of a guy. And where there is dialogue, it's very childish to me. And I think it kind of ruins the whole, the whole issue here. Uh, get a 1.5 out of me at the most, just based on that childish dialogue. But I would be interested to see where it goes. Yeah, I agree. It's it's not it's not that it's a bad book. It's just there nah, needs to be just, a little bit more. Whoever's whoever's talking like these people needs to step back and start all over. Mm. <laughs> well, like people in real life. Yeah, mm. yeah you like got the, the usual like little girl screaming like "Ooh, daddy, a monster!" You know that's not original or smart writing. That's true. That's true, and I I didn't really care for Liggett's and Liggett his his is, place. Is, like if you if you're going to like immediately start talking this, why were you begging for your life? Like I get begging for it. Just sells him as more of a, a worthless piece of yeah. comeuppance, I guess is what I would, like, would sum it up as. I mean, because he cause he starts out very like I'm gonna whoop you, and then as soon as he realizes he can't, then he's crying like a little girl to. Oh, don't save me, Ethan! Don't kill me! And then, as soon as Ethan manages to save him, he's right back to talking crap. Yeah. So it just tells how much of a piece of crap he is. I, I think. Does I that think, make it good? No. Yeah. I think the missing component is that we don't know anything about Ethan yet. And I mean, I guess that that's the whole idea. We're supposed. To, this is supposed to kind of boom get you into the action, and you want to know more. But I don't know if it did that very well. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I, I guess I give it a two and a half. Uh, score wise, the art is beautiful. Well, yeah. you know, yeah, two and a half. I can't, yeah, two and a half. The art's beautiful. Tony Daniels is awesome. He's a really good writer too. Like the Deathstroke stuff he did is awesome. I don't, I'll give you some of the campy dialogue on the outside is almost like PG-13 movie related. I mean, yeah, he's a monster. Do we need the kids talking? No, not really. Do, should they just be running? Yeah, they probably should. Um, the inner monologue stuff's not bad. Ethan talking down the damage itself, I don't think mm-hmm. is bad. The catch at the end, 
which is the only part we've been we're saving for people to make them read the book, is freaking awesome. Like that concept is really cool. And like when we meet our new colonel, our new captain, like her look is neat. I mean, it's very Nick Fury esque. You know, I mean, get the book to see what I mean by that. But you can probably guess. So like her, and then who she comes up again at the against at the very end, is like pretty detrimental, especially when you see the characters the reveal at the end. Like her situation is kind of screwed too, regardless of what she was trying to do, what she was working on. It's like the brick wall she was up against isn't just the mission now; it's all of a sudden this other entity. And I think that's really cool. So, like moving forward with the book, like I think the catch at the end is going to really set up the next piece of it. Could it add more backstory? Maybe. I mean, I don't. It's hard to say. You know. I guess we'll see as far as like the rest of moving forward is concerned. I, I, I'm interested to see the next book, but it's mostly the catch at the end that sold me. Yeah. The other thing that actually is really neat about this story that I don't think you find in other places is, yeah, we have, like, that hour limit or whatever that he's going to be damaged, but we have, a like, a 24-hour before he can be damaged again. And that kind of puts this crazy timetable on both them finding him and kind of everything he does in the book, because we don't know at this point... Whether that means, like, right when that hour is up, boom, he's going to be damaged. Or, you know, if he can actually control her and keep it down. If he makes it happen or doesn't make it happen. Yeah. I mean, clearly from the from the beginning of the book, it seems like the internal distraughtness is what bringing it on. But we don't know if that's the case yeah. or not. Well, I mean, you know, you got to think, if they're, they're bringing him somewhere. Right. Why have Ethan in chains if he can control it? That's a good point. You know? And it's not even that Ethan's like, oh no, here it comes. It's that he's he's upset because they did put him in chains. So there's something there. What huh. that is, we don't know. Right. That's an interesting yeah. question. I hadn't thought about that. All the action that happens in the book takes place only over four and a half minutes. Mm. And then suddenly you jump to 12 hours later. Yeah. It's a pretty big broad of span. I would have liked to see more in that hour, I guess. Yeah, yeah that's a question of what he was doing. Well, what else happened? He's supposed to be a rage monster, and what we get to see mostly is fallout after the fact of the plane. So, yeah. like, that's kind of weak. That's true. Yeah, we don't really see anything in the city yet. Yeah. Except for the cars and, like, all the destruction we saw initially, so... I don't know. I, I don't think it's a bad book, but... As far as like a kickoff for this whole new age of heroes, the art's beautiful. The story's not bad, but it's it seems short comparatively. So I guess we'll see what the terrific because I think that's the next one that comes out as uh, no real connection to the damage. But as far as being an original character, I mean, yeah, we haven't had any new characters in DC that were hero type characters in a minute. So I think that's cool. Anyhow, uh, let's move on to something entirely different flavor. <laughs> Marvel? No, is that not? Well, flavor is Marvel. You're like, oh, it tastes like mouse and distrust. And I'm like, oh, that hurts. No, not maybe not. I had fun at Disneyland. It's fine. Never been a fan of the ears, but that's all right. Anyway. <laughs> so confused right now. No, it's a, well. <laughs> In case you haven't figured it out by now, I'm not a comic guy. I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not totally true. You're Walking Dead kind of guy. Uh, Walking Dead, Johnny the Homicidal Maniacs. Right. Both good choices. A little bit of Watchmen, and that's it. Uh-huh. 
Well, we'll yeah, we'll work it. We're working on that, John. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so well, most of that was so. I don't. Maybe you don't know this. Um, so Disney owns Marvel, and Disney is Mickey Mouse. So mm-hmm. the whole joke about the mouse and the cheese. Whenever I reference cheese, it's because of the mouse. It's not the best explanation in the world. But that kind of explains things I say to people. <laughs> in case they don't understand it, they're like, this guy's crazy. Now I understand. Look at his stupid ears on his head. And I'm like, <laughs> and I try to put on the gloves, but they don't fit. Old jokes. Anyway, um, so let's move on to Rogue and Gambit, number one. <laughs> I don't, uh, anyway, this is written by uh, Kelly Thompson, and uh, the art is uh, Pierre... Prez? Pierre Prez? Pierre Prez. Okay. Um, Prez. Uh, far as open up, like when we first start, we open up with what... We're not... It doesn't really give us a time frame, but we have basically Rogue and Gambit, and the two of them in the middle of an interlude that starts out slightly romantic, and then phases to a fight, and then phases back to slightly romantic. It's kind of going over time frame. We see Gambit, classic Gambit colors... Classic Gambit costume, Rogue with the headband, so back before she started wearing the hood. So this is like a travel through time in all of nine panels. Um, And that leads us to a giant shattered window with all these different pieces of images from their history, way back from Jim Lee days, all the way through the time whenever Rogue was wearing the pink and yellow costume, uh, Gambit sort of being dead, not being dead. So we, we go through a gamut of images in here, and then it's got the two of them in the middle of it basically fighting it out. Gamut of images. <laughs> yeah, it it's good stuff, right? Yeah. We, we all got it. Tee hee. Alright, so we cut straight from there to, uh, I don't know how to say this. Casadilla Parcidio? This is sometime before the, mm. the events we saw earlier, I guess. And we're, we, we went running into this group of people running away from something. And the, they don't look too different. Uh, we do see one of them has horns, and the other one has an elongated face. Um, but they're whatever they're running for, they're running life and death style. And they wind up in an alleyway hiding. And uh, one of the characters, the one with the horns, seems to have like a, a glowy-type power in her hand, some type of energy. And the two of them, are, they're all talking about how they, they, they don't know if they're ever going to get away. And then one of them's got an injured ankle, so he says, you got to leave me. And as they're trying to decide what to do next, we have a character run around the corner that was chasing them, which is a shrouded character with these crazy, like, glowing eyes. And, uh, it bombards them with this white light. And then, uh, the next thing we see is it telling them, I guess they're done with the program, is what it says. And we see their, all their eyes are whited out. And it's hard to say if they're dead or what exactly, because it's like their pupils are gone. Yeah. And, uh... That's, if I was banking on something, I'd bank on death. It, it looks very much like that. Like, whatever Blast was, killed them. Well, we do kind of get that sort of explained later, so yeah, they're dead. Um, anyway, we jump from there to the Xavier Institute, and it's current now. So, the past and the present, we're now in the present. And uh, we have a Rogue, or, excuse me, we have Storm, supervising an exhibition in the Danger Room. And uh, she's joined by Gambit up inside the uh, control room. And of course, Gambit's being his normal Gambit self. Oh, who's in the danger room? What are they doing? Blah, blah, blah. Mona me, you know, because he's Cajun or whatever. And uh, she tells him, oh, yeah, we got Rogue in the group down there training. He's like, oh, Rogue's training? Wah, ha, ha. And uh, he says, well, I think I'm going to join him. She's like, no, no, it's a closed, it's a closed uh, 
it's a closed session. He's like, oh, have you ever known that to stop me? <laughs> and so we join the group in the danger room already in progress, and we have Pixie, Psylocke, Rogue, and Armor all in there fighting like classic-style Sentinels. And here comes Gambit, and uh, he makes mention earlier about them being classic-style Sentinels, and Storm tells him it was a request by the person throwing the the uh, training session, which, of course, is Rogue. And so Gambit joins in, and of course Rogue tells him, you don't, we don't need you here, we got this under control. And the other girls are like, oh, everybody should work together. And Psylocke's like, Gambit, you just don't pull your own strades, and do what you normally do with fights. And so of course he starts throwing cards and blowing stuff up, and we wind up having Rogue get caught off kind of off guard, and one of the Sentinels goes to Pinner, and uh, Gambit freaks out and intercedes and blows the hell out of the, the Sentinel's arm. And then uh, once the dust clears, we see he's above her underneath the what the, would have been the hand and he's kind of holding her like cradling her so she didn't fall on the ground and uh he's like oh, oh, oh how you doing lady that's not what he says but it's it's basically what he says and the other girls are like whoa that was crazy because like his display of power was pretty impressive and all of them were impressed except for betsy and of course the other girls they're it's pixie and armor and they don't really know gambit like there's not a lot of time with them with him but Psylocke's like, dude, what are you doing? Rogue was fine. She could totally take that. Her strength level is way past anything there. And so she scolds Gambit. And, of course, that leads to Gambit getting stopped in the face by Rogue as he tries to get too close to get a, you know, little Gambit mouth-to-mouth going on. That's not a good way to describe it. He tries to kiss her. And so she slaps him in the face. That's better? Okay. Probably. Tongue-in-cheek. I like this book a lot. So it's it's fun for me to describe. Anyhow... Uh, so Rogue steps, stands, storms out of the training session. She's like, hey, we, we don't need you around, Gambit. And off she goes. Well, he chases her out into the hallway, and he starts trying to talk to her. And, of course, as they're talking, you know, like, the, the conversation starts very, like, I can't believe you always got to get in my way, Gambit, to being like, oh, I, I kind of like you being around, Gambit. And then, of course, Process likes, he's like, we should go on a date. She's like, or he asks her out to dinner is what he does. She's like, I can't control my powers. You know, I, I can't control them anymore. That's all gone. Because at one point she had control, now she just doesn't anymore. Anyhow, he's like, I'm, it, it didn't ever bother me before, so it's fine. And about that time, we wind up hearing a call for her to go to the administration office, because uh, Kitty Pride needs to talk to her. So she leaves Gam in the hallway, and off she goes. So she next we cut to the uh, headmistress office, because Kitty Pride is currently running the X-Men, and she's the leader in charge. And uh, her and Rogue are talking about a mission that she has that she needs to send her on. And as they go through the mission, they discuss a couple other things, you know, about relationship stuff and how Gambit being around, if it's a problem, blah, 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 blah. Interesting. And, of course, the two of them banter back and forth a little bit, and Kitty says something about the two of her and her and Gambit always kind of being a thing, and she's like, so what's the deal with you and Peter? And she's like, oh. So it's like, the two of them kind of turn it on each other, like, we both make bad choices and dudes. Anyhow, we get to the end of the conversation, and she tells her, well, the only problem with this mission is that what we've had going on is we've had mutants, their blips disappearing from Spiral, or from, uh... Cerebro. From Cerebro. So, like, they completely vanish, which tells us those characters in the beginning were dead. So it's not like they disappear or hidden, like, the the the, the, the bead that Cerebro has for them just disappears. And so Kitty has to send some X-Men in that are trained that have connection to each other. And so she tells her it's going to be you and Gambit, and Kitty, at first, Rogue's like, no freaking way, I'm never going to do that. And Kitty's like, well, I need to send people that have experience, because this situation, you're basically infiltrating a, a couple's retreat, 
that's where these people got missing from. And she's like, well, there's no way Gambit will do it. If Gambit will do it, then I'll do it. And, of course, Kitty already knows that Gambit agreed. So she sends Rogue and Gambit off on this uh, couple's retreat to fix their problems. Uh, from there, we cut to the inside of the uh, of the airplane they're flying in on. And, of course, Gambit sitting next to Rogue telling him, it's not going to be so bad. We can work out our problems with each other, you know? This is not the baddest idea in the world. And he's like, come on, give me a little sugar. He doesn't say that, but that's that's what he's trying to do. Anyway, at one point he's like, she tells him, I can't control my powers, Gambit. Like, that's not a good idea. And he's like, oh, but it was alright for you to kiss Deadpool? And she's like, I didn't kiss Deadpool. I made out with Deadpool. And of course he's like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's got no face. That's exactly what he says. Pretty sure he says that. Yeah, he he's, says, got he's, no he's got no face. And she's like, oh, well, I guess you try harder when you don't have a face. That's basically what she says to him. Anyway, of course, eventually we get the plan to land. There's some other dialogue between the two of them that's really pretty good. I mean, as far as relationship stuff, it's it's really pretty good going over the time when they were together. So we get to the island. They land. They get off the plane. They meet their uh, chaperone. The chaperone tells them, oh, I'm going to take you to your bungalow and get you all set up, and then we'll send you for your first training session or your first therapy session. So they get introduced into the room, and she explains to them that, you know their, where their bungalow is, and Rogue's like, hang on, one bungalow? She's like... Um, well, yeah, we find couples do better if they're staying together, being that they're couples. And Rogue Gambit's like, ha ha! And Rogue's like, oh, I can't believe this. Anyway, so they get led to their bungalow, and, uh, while they're in there checking in, they wind up meeting two other people. Uh, there's, uh, a, a, another couple out in the, in the pool. So, like, the way they set up is we've got bungalows all surrounding a pool. And the pool's in the very middle, like, as if it's the, uh, courtyard, except it's a pool. Anyway. So they, of course, come over and they want to talk to him. Like, oh, hey, you guys are new to the retreat? And Gambit's like, hey, how long have you guys been here? You know, detective style. And the guy's like, oh, we're on our third day. You know, it's going pretty good. And, you know, everything's going real well. And he talks about how the girlfriend's real good about meeting people. But he's not so good at it. And uh, they ask him if they'll have dinner with him later that evening. And, of course, Rogue's like, yeah, I guess we can. And then that leads to the two of them going to their first session. And as they're walking down the beach, Gambit's like, you know, this might be a new start for us. You know, we've... I've always, you know, he talks about how he's always cared about her and stuff like that. And she's she's like, well, I guess we'll see. And Gambit's like, well, I can't get any worse. And then we have the final reveal on the next page, which is going to be, dun, 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 a mystery. Unless you read the book. That's that's it. That's that's what I got for that part there. I don't know how significant it is, but the other couple are both mutants as well. Well, of course, yes, yeah. yeah. The, the key factor here is that this is a couple retreat for mutants. Why, whenever Kitty sent the two of them, because they have couples experience, and they're both mutants, is the only way they can get them in. So, with that in mind, they're the most natural choice of the group, because they couldn't send anybody humanoid. You have to have some type of mutant power. That's what the whole point of the retreat is. That's that They specialize in that. Which is why they know something shady is going on when people are disappearing from there. Anyhow, um, art-wise, I like the art a lot. Um, I think the book's super fun. I mean, I kind of review it in a wah-wah-wah kind of way with Gambit, but it's because I like Gambit. So it's fun to me. Uh, I give it three and a half. Uh, it's a five-part miniseries, so I don't know what exactly is going to come out of it, really. It's a fun book. Interesting to read. It's neat to see them work on the two of them as a couple again, because we haven't had that since, oh, I don't know, like maybe the last seven, well, five to seven years of books. I mean, Gambit's either been off the grid because he was a Apocalypse Alkalite, or... The weird thing where Rogue didn't have any powers anymore and she had the tattoos on her it was the last time they were really together, I think. 
trying to live in that weird island. Oh, gosh. And that's been forever ago. Yeah, there's been some stuff in between, but... Not yeah. anything of precedence. Not really. So, yeah, I... Would I give it a minute ago? Uh, 3.5. Three and a half? I yeah. Yes. yeah. I yeah, give it 3.5. Yeah. I, I think it was fun. I... I dig it a lot just because it's a it's a fun book and these are characters that like fit together and their whole romance has been built over so long and I know that sounds like sentimental style and maybe it kind of is but I mean if you like a romantic comedy this is kind of it I mean it's not really funny ha 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 but when I read Gambit in my head it's very he's he's the talking candlestick from Beauty and the Beast okay freaking awesome three and a half Rob talk about that book. Uh, I'd, I'd go ahead and follow suit and be at three, though. I do really like the artwork for it. Um, for me, when I came into the X-Men, Gambit and Rogue were the big thing, and their relationship is, is huge. And so it's nice to see them kind of going back to that, because I, I've liked that relationship better than I've liked any other setup with, with Rogue. You know, so I'm I'm happy to see that. And that was I honestly that was the big draw for me for this book was that relationship to be kinda highlighted again. So I'm excited to see where they go with it. Um it's been an interesting story so far. You know, and we'll have to see what comes out of it. I mean honestly there's a lot of stuff going on with the X Men right now. I wouldn't be sad to see them them get this relationship going again. Yeah. Uh, Mr. John, you got your thoughts so on far behind on X Men. <laughs> oh, I got, I got nothing. All right, but no, I did. The dialogue looks like it's intelligent, unlike the last thing we reviewed. <laughs> so oh. that's a big one for me. <laughs> there was a kid in there that said, "Oh my God, it's a monster!" Oh, no, that ruined it for me. <laughs> that, that but now Gambit's always been one of my favorites. Mm. I always like Gambit. Hopefully. It's a story you guys both enjoy. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that brings Gambit back into at least the main titles for a little while. I mean, he was he's in Astonishing, but he's been kind of on the outside for a while now, and I just I much prefer him as a part of the X groups instead of running around trying to be the King of Thieves thing. So it's it weird, right? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe with this whole new slate of X Men color teams. We'll get him as part of one of the main groups, and I don't know if that's what this book's designed to do. But as far as the setup, I'm hoping we get some other answers about that time when he was part of Apocalypse's minions. Whether we will or not, I mean, yeah, who knows? I mean, I might be lost to time at this point. But if nothing else, at least he's in there, true Gambit fashion, blowing stuff up, and taking lays out on dates. So that's awesome. I think it's great. All right. Well, I think we'll move uh, from that into this uh, interview with uh, Mr. Rob Guillory. Uh, this was, again was done over at the uh, Colorado Springs Comic Con, uh, 2017. Uh, so enjoy. Hey, this is Eve with Top Five Comics Podcast here at the Colorado Springs 2017 Comic Con. I'm here with Mr. Rob Guillory. Hey, Rob. So we were just talking a second ago, and. The- you're telling me a little bit about a book you'll be working on for Image. Yeah, yeah. I haven't announced it yet, and uh, I can't talk about it. <laughs> All right, no worries. But uh, it is going to be. I am writing and drawing it. Um, I'm planning it as a. Uh, I mean, I have an ending in mind. Uh, every arc's going to be about five or six issues. So I'm planning about twenty to twenty-four issues, uh, finite story. Cool. Yeah. 
Right on. Mm-hmm. Well, it should be fun when it comes out, man. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, when did you... Was there a point when you decided that art is what you wanted to do as a job, man? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always... I've always drawn since I was a really young kid, but... I mean, I grew up in, in uh, Louisiana. So, like, back then before the internet there wasn't a lot of information about how you actually break into comics right. so I never really looked at comics as a real job uh, probably until college uh, around 2001-ish was when like you know the internet was in full swing I could find information about it anywhere right. so that was about that time I started really looking at it as a real thing cool so like whenever you were for, I mean when you're first getting into the idea of it was there like artists you followed or like were people that you looked up to as far as art yeah yeah, I mean, I grew up as a Marvel DC kid. I mean, so there's a lot of artists, John Romita Jr., uh, John Mishima, Steve Ditko. A lot of artists that I uh, was already a, a huge fan of from, like, really, really young. Right. But I just kind of got more into more um, more kind of in- independent, kind of different, non-Big 2, you know, more independent stuff. Uh, guys like Jim Food, who's here, um, Dave Crosland, a lot of uh, anime, actually. Right. Uh, Akira Toriyama. A few, Rumika Takahashi, a few different people. So yeah, there was a lot of a lot of folks I looked to in the beginning. Right on, yeah, Dave's a, Dave's a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah Dave's a good guy. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, man. Well, like as far as uh, as far as art stuff and storytelling, I mean, do you have a? Is this the first like self-written story that you've been doing, or have you done stories like that before? No, I mean everything I did before Chew for the most part, none of it was published, but what I wrote all of it. Oh, I mean, okay. I used to my first. Um, I actually had, I was a staff cartoonist in my uh, university's uh, paper for like five years. Oh, man. So, I mean, I was doing two weekly strips for five years, right. and I was writing and drawing all of it. Oh, that's uh, cool. So, yeah, no, I have a background in it. It's just when, with Chu, uh, I was I was so focused and so busy with just doing a monthly comic, I didn't have time to write my own stuff. Oh, no, understandable. Yeah, so now, like, you know, it's over, and, I mean, there's a few friends I've contacted who are professionals who are writers that I've talked to about collaborating, but I keep coming back to the fact that I just kind of want to make my own stories. Cool. So I just kind of jumped all into this thing. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Yep. Well, like, and Shoe kind of really took off, too. I mean, yeah. I remember talking to you guys early on about that, and you're like, well, we were expecting 10 issues, and all of a sudden yeah. here we are, like, yep. so many years later. It's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we only planned it. I was only contracted for five issues because we didn't, I, I mean, he didn't know. He was paying me out of his pocket, and he didn't know how long it would take him to make a profit. So the second we realized, holy crap, like we can actually make a profit off of this thing, we the, the dream was always to go 60 issues with it. So after it became obvious we could, we just did. That's awesome, man. That's super cool. Yeah. All right, well, if, if people want to get... So contact-wise, if people want to get a hold of you or look to buy art from you, where yeah. would they do that? Uh, RobGillery.com. Uh, social media, I'm on pretty much everything. Uh, at I'm on Twitter, Facebook, uh, whatever, and Instagram. It's all at Rob underscore Guillory. Awesome. So what's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, man. Go-to karaoke song. I don't know. I've never done karaoke. It's understandable. One song. I have to pick one go-to uh Man, that's tough. Mm, uh, Jackson 5, ABC, probably. It's a good choice. Yeah. It's a good song. Pretty obvious. Yeah, no, it's a good one, man. Everyone knows that one. Right. Yeah. Why's well, the whole point of karaoke? It's all about knowing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, so now if you got stranded on a desert island, a deserted island, okay. and you only take five items with you, items can also be people. Okay. 
What would you take? If I can only take five? Five. Oh, uh, man. I would take... I take my wife. That's one. I have three kids. I guess I'd take all three of them, so that's four. And I guess uh, uh, a large supply of food <laughs> would, be, would be the fifth. That would be a good supply, a good thing to have, especially with all the people. Right, Excellent. Right. If you lived in Fantasyland, would you ride a chocolate pony? Would I ride a chocolate pony? Could I, like, eat it, too? Or sure. All right, yeah. As long as I can take a bite, I will ride the chocolate pony. Cool. Right on, man. Well, thanks for your time, Rob. Appreciate yeah, it, man. No problem. No problem. All right, well, I thank Rob again for taking time to chit-chat with me. Uh, looking forward to his project coming out sometime this year, 2018. Great run of Chew. If you guys haven't got a chance to check it out, you really should. Of course, we've seen Rob in a few variant covers over DC and Marvel, both. Awesome artist. Super great guy. Uh, totally looking forward to his project here in 2018. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. Rob, what did you learn today? I, I learned in the pages of Damage Number 1, if you feel really bad about something, you just slice your hands on the side of a metal piece, and then you can just blame it on the other people. <laughs> Look at the blood of my hand now. It's all your fault. It was a weird spot in the book. Like, out of, the, out of a lot of the things that happened, that was the strange one for me. She's using her blood to cleanse the accident. I guess. Right. I didn't realize she was that religious, but... Yeah, there you go. Maybe she is. Uh, all right, John, what would you learn today? I learned from a ice cream man there that... Spiders and boners oftentimes can mix. <laughs> Every time I've been bit by a spider, Every I never time, learn that. <laughs> yeah, there's. I always get a boner. I don't know why, but now I do. <laughs> Man, sometimes I have dreams about spiders and wake up. I think that's something else. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I I think that's something else, John. <laughs> oh, that. Let's hope not. <laughs> Rob, what I learned today. Uh, you learned that Gambit sounds like the talking candlestick from Beauty and the Beast. Mostly in my head. In, in your head. Yes. That's, I think that's the first time I told anybody that. I'm pretty sure I've known that forever. Well, I'm just glad that you stopped saying homie all the time. <laughs> that was a weird thing for me. I don't know what yeah. bothered me so much. Gambit was like, homie! Like, it was a weird time in books. Yeah. yeah. Like they forgot he was Cajun. I, the duck. They just got confused what Cajun... What that meant? Yeah. yeah. I mean, don't, you could say homie, I guess, if you're a Cajun, but it just seems weird. It just, <laughs> it just felt weird. Like they, It felt like they got confused between Spanish and Cajun. And they were... Two, di- two different cuisines, I think. Yeah, usually. Yeah. usually. They both have rice in them. That's <laughs> true. But... <laughs> Stupid. Um, all right, uh, Rob, do you have any uh, books to watch? Oh, jeez. Uh, well, we do get the last issue of Phoenix coming up. And then we'll have X-Men Red, which should be awesome. Uh, I guess we need to look forward to this Justice League stuff. The the different teams of Justice League that's going to be coming around the corner soon. Should be interesting. Yeah, and I, I'm still interested to see what the Terrifics is going to be. They have some kind of previews for them in the back of some of these DC books lately. I don't know, it looks pretty exciting, so... Should be cool. It's an interesting dynamic of characters. Uh, John, you have any books to watch? Apparently, The Walking Dead's got some books coming out still. <laughs> oh my gosh, man. <laughs> yes, it's still happening. It's still a thing. 
Ice Cream Man would be a good one. Yeah, Ice Cream Man is going to be interesting to see where that goes. I'll definitely give that a read. Uh, damage number two, just to see if I dislike it. <laughs> Still. <laughs> awesome. How about yourself? Um, what do we got? Man, let's see. Well, Image has, has a few books that are pretty good. I mean, we saw Black Science. We had an issue of that come out this last month. All the Rick Remender stuff is still decent. It has slowed down a little bit, and I think it's because he's been working on a Deadly Class TV show. So I guess, depending on how heavily he's involved in that, might explain why the other books have slowed down. So I'm still, I'm still pretty happy with Deadly Class, and Black Science, the new issue, is really good. So I, as far as books, both those are still really good ones to watch. I'm interested to see what this, the terrifics, like Rob was saying. Like, I think that'll be cool. And the backup story that's been in a couple of these books for him, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. So, like, if nothing else, read the backup, backup stories in your books. Don't just skip them. At least that one. Yeah, it might, might bring you into it. They also have, what, Sideways, I think is in there? Uh, Sideways another one? Yeah. Yeah, he had previews maybe two months Which ago. looks really good. It does, um, actually. It looks awesome. I don't know if the story will carry it, but it looks really good. I'd say Rose from, uh, also from Image Comics. Like, I still dig Rose a lot. The last one that I can think of right the second, she think we plan ahead better. Uh, I mean, the Milk Wars, the stuff coming out from uh, the mashup between uh, Young Animal and DC. So we're going to have the Doom Patrol mashup with Justice League. And then we have the Milkman story. And we'll have the Mother Panic story. And I think those will be really cool. Is the Milk Wars? Milk Is Wars, yeah. yeah. We started to have like, a Superman that looks like a Milkman delivery man. What exactly that means, don't know yet. But last week they sent us a promo thing that's like a milk carton that has him on the cover of it in his little milk uniform. Freaking awesome. Yeah, it's a cool. stupid little plastic cardboard fold out, but yeah, it was pretty neat. Anyway, um, that's all I got. Robbie, got anything else? Imaginary Fiends was actually still been really good. And I guess Birthright. Yeah, no, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> so I just got the key. The key. Mr. John, anything else? Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, buddy. Yeah, for sure. Good times. Heck yeah. I'm the outsider. <laughs> Gives you a cast name, that's good. Now you can be the insider. Now I'm the insider. be weird. Yeah. <laughs> See the outsider and the insider. That's, that's a different no, guy. I'll, I'll stick to the outsider. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so Taki? 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 Taki?